Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian literature for the inebriated. I'm Matt Garasimovich, PhD student in Russian Lit. This week, instead of doing my reading on the Slavophiles, I decided it would be time better spent to instead uh, purchase a game called Gas Station Simulator and uh, try my luck at running my own gas station. How'd it go? Uh, pretty good so far. I'm making more money than as a PhD student. Are you interested in doing that as a real job now? No, it seems too hard. Sure. What if I instead send you a version of that game, but also there's a serial killer following you? Would that interest you more? Would that make you more interested in doing this in real life? The problem is I would, if I was being stalked at that level, I think I would want to have my own sort of true crime podcast around it. Okay. Um, I really want to be able to monetize all aspects of my life. Got it. So you'd have a true crime podcast around your own impending murder. Yes. Got it. Uh, you always be grinding. That's the that's the most important. Always be. And then when I come back as a ghost, the ghost can do the next part. Yeah. Well, uh, be that as it may, I'm Cameron Lalana. And fun fact about my neck of the woods: um, one of the founders of the Hell's Angels Motorcycle Club recently died, and so seven thousand motorcycle uh, members of the motorcycle club Hell's Angels uh, gathered in my neck of the woods yesterday. So it was very much advised that you do not go out at night. <laughs> did you did you join them on your motorcycle on your hog? No, as I, it were. I decided not to because uh, no joke. The Hell's Angels have an actual office space down the street from where I work, and sometimes if I drive there at night, I will see them all gathered there out front, and it's very tough not to hit their motorcycles because it's like right next to a roundabout. It's very thin there. But you get a jacket, probably right. The only thing I know about motorcycle groups gangs. I well I don't Posses. I don't I don't mean to imply you don't know things about them but I don't think you usually get jackets from hitting their bikes it's usually you get something worse from that No 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 I don't think they give you a prize for hitting their bikes <laughs> I think if you were to join them rather infiltrate oh, from yes. the inside Right I need to learn how to ride a motorcycle first but then after that right. sure Okay <laughs> Well this is a podcast where me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two this week, we crawl towards the conclusion of Stalingrad ever so slowly with part eight of our series. We only got two more after this. So it's... We're getting there. It's almost done that I'm going to be sad. You're not already sad getting into this? No, I mean, I'm sad because of the content, but I will be sad because sure. it's over. Oh, yes, that's right. As they say, don't cry because it happened. Cry because it's over. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was actually the entirety of the mental health care that Soviet soldiers were given after the war. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, <laughs> well, before we get into the reading today, speaking of mental health care after wars are over, Matt, what are you drinking today? All right, lads. I got a real drink today. Oh, beautiful. I'm very excited for, for this concoction that I made. Uh, it's finally getting cool outside now mm -hmm. here mm -hmm. in Illinois. So I have myself a warm apple cider with oh. an apple whiskey mixed in. That and sounds really pleasant. It is delicious. It is a dumbed-down version of the sort of cider whiskey sangria concoction that we made for our friends a couple nights ago. Uh, but it still has <laughs> Wait, a spot. Wait, hold on. Were those mm -hmm. all one drinks? That sounds... I'm gonna not going to lie to you fucked up. No, it was delicious. It was... Um, okay. Cut sliced up pears, apples. Sure. Apple whiskey. With you so far. Apple cider. Brandy. And then pomegranate seeds. And then okay. you let it all combine for a couple hours. And then uh, you mix in a little bit of Prosecco. Garnish with a cinnamon stick. Oh, baby. You got yourself drunk. <laughs> <laughs> 
That sounds like a monstrosity, but I'm not necessarily opposed to it. I'll, I'll make it for you next time you're here on the Tipsy Tolstoy Retreat. Beautiful, thank you. <laughs> what are you drinking this fine evening, Cameron, after you called my drink a monstrosity? <laughs> uh, well, I am drinking. I think I, I'm, now, I'm now the one who is bringing nothing interesting to the table. I have awesome, finally. Only, <laughs> <laughs> I have only a, an old Rasputin which is a Russian Imperial Stout by North Coast Brewing. I think I've had it on the podcast a couple times before. It's just it's just a good old-fashioned, mm. uh, you know, 8% beer. Nice nice thing to go back to after a, a long day of, um, well, not buying other more interesting beers. Well, I mean, sometimes you got to have your tried and true. You got to go back to some solid ones. You got to have those. You got it. And after 65 episodes, you know, I'm surprised we haven't repeated more often. Really? 71 if you count bonus episodes. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, bonus episodes, we're just, those are, we're just like, I don't know, hounding liquor for those. True. True. I don't know if they count. But anyway, before we got into the, the book today, I wanted to quickly, I know I kind of, for the last two episodes, I kind of fell off this. We've been talking about some book recommendations for World War II every episode. This episode, because I've fallen off two episodes in a row, I've, I've decided there are no rules anymore. <laughs> so I'm going to talk about a book that is about World War II, but isn't uh, from the era, unlike almost every other book I've recommended so far, or is a history book about the era written afterwards, which is... Europe Central by William T. Volman. Uh, Matt, I, I think I've talked about William Volman to you before. I, I, do you have we? I, I can't recall. Almost certainly. Okay. It sounds like a combination of names that you would have talked about to me. Yes. Well, Volman is a supremely weird dude. He wrote a, like a three thousand page book on violence, which I'm like hounding to get, but all I can find is the seven hundred page abridged uh, version, uh, in which the 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 intro to it is basically. It took me ten years to write the original version of. Uh, what was it falling up falling down it took me about half an hour to make this version i'm only making it because it costs money but hopefully someone else will someone will read it because it's shorter now which <laughs> very sincere intro uh william bullman supremely weird writer did a seven book series called the seven cycles trilogy or seven dreams not trilogy seven dreams a cycle which is just about the interactions between the the colonizing europeans and the native peoples of the americas through seven different journeys or seven different uh, episodes so to speak all written in like roughly contemporaneous language so you're going to be like reading about the story of pocahontas and john smith written by someone who's theoretically a historian of the late middle english or is it early modern english period very weird very hard to read europe central interesting book it is about mostly through the lens of um dmitry shostakovich and is his life through a fictionalized lens as well as a number of other people artists generals many of them real many of them fake people from this from about 1920 to 1960 through uh the clash between the soviet union and uh nazi germany and later on the um uh west and east german republics under the the thumbs of different world powers and the, it's just such a weirdly written section. Uh, some It's not all written the same way. Sometimes the author is, you know, a, like a, just a straightforward third person. Sometimes it's written as if it's a historical report. Sometimes it's written as, as if it's from the the view of the secret police. Uh, sometimes it's written as if it's a fairy tale. It Every one chapter to the next. Very weird book. Incredibly satisfying and some of the most incredible prose I think I've ever read. So not not a straightforward historical perspective on the period, but just a fun one, a fun romp if you have time to read another 700 pages, I guess. This is the one where you concluded that you now know more about a fake Dmitry Shostakovich than the real one, correct? Oh, 3,000%. The entirety of the plot of yes, Dmitry Shostakovich, if I can spoil it, is about his romance with uh, Yelena Konstantinovskaya. 
And this is a real person. There's evidence that they met, but there's absolutely no evidence that they carried on a decades-long um, affair that was like the overriding feature of Dmitry Shostakovich's life, completely made up. But, but really, this book answers the question, what if there was <laughs> yeah definitely very much so and again like i said incredible prose one of my favorite lines in all of literature which is but imagining the future then mistaking imagination for foresight is one of life's luxuries certainly it seemed to him and her and how could it be otherwise that whenever they kissed they were drinking the future some of my favorite lines in all of literature has been written in that just such an incredible prose writer um and you know, great, probably the greatest romance that definitely never happened. <laughs> My book recommendation for this week is to read Stalingrad. <laughs> That's a great recommendation. I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that, Matt. I cannot in good faith assign these good people more reading than what we're already reading. I can. I feel no qualms about that. I'm, I'm a yeah. worse, worse. That's why you're in academia and I'm working in non, the nonprofit industry. I, I don't know. I think it should be the other way around, really. <laughs> I was assigned quite a lengthy text to read over the weekend, which will not be being read. <laughs> so now let's continue on with Stalingrad Part 8, which is confusingly is Part 3 of the actual book and covers chapters 1 through 17. So this part is um, getting to the actual battle and is uh, sad. It's just sad. And it doesn't immediately come off as sad, but it gets that way as we read more. I don't know if you have any any additions before we get into it. Um, no, not really. <laughs> That's fair. Not 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 up front. I think I had a whole rant prepared about how okay we're eight hundred pages in. How is Grossman still introducing new characters? Before I was like, wait, I think this is familiar. This name is I definitely read this name. I've read this character trait before. And then as it went on, I'm like, oh, oh, mm. oh, yeah, oh no. Yeah. Yeah. These this character and his family have been here this entire time in the saddest way possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had I think the same moment on this yeah. one. Because last time we were talking about how is he still introducing new characters and he legitimately was. Uh and this time it turns out we're just bad readers. No, I well I was I I knew I'd read the name before, but it was struggling to place it and I didn't want to like flip mm -hmm. back through seven hundred pages to figure out where it was from. But right. we'll get to that in a second. So we get back, as usual, to uh, in kind of an overview of the war at this point. Now, it starts from the 25th of August, which is when the Germans are threatening from St Stalingrad from the, the north, south, and west. Um, and it's written that for all the stuff, stubbornness of the defenders, the Germans continued to advance. Their num numerical superiority was too great. There were three German soldiers for every Russian soldier, two German guns for every Russian gun. I meant to do this before the podcast, actually look up the numbers fighting in Stalingrad, because I think commonly... At least, maybe this is just because I hung around too much on like uh, non-specialist military uh, internet before I, when I was too young. But the common view of the uh, Wehrmacht uh, USSR war is that it was uh, a huge number of Russian forces versus a relatively small force of, of German soldiers. I, based on my 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 um, brief studies in college, that is not actually true. They were roughly similar forces i mean depending on the time of the war there were greater on one side or the other but either way it was in the millions i don't actually know if it was if it's true at the battle of stalingrad that the germans outnumber the russians or the soviets i should say um but it might be it there were there were points in the war where the germans vastly outnumbered the russians oh and the points in the war where it, the opposite was true um war. so but it's still if you ever heard the the kind of like horde 
idea of of the Soviets fighting the the Wehrmacht that is uh, isn't borne out by the historical record. So at this point, the we follow on to a month forward, and the in the fifth of September, the Soviets are carrying out a very costly counterattack, which costs many troops, but it does give grant them the advantage of time, uh, and the time for the reserve troops who are coming to Stalingrad to come to come support them. And we join uh, Tolyesh Boshnikov, who we have not seen in many, many hundreds of pages, who is, as a reminder, with a guards unit, uh, with an artillery unit, and has been trained as an artillery uh, commander. It's mentioned by the text that uh, Tolya is now in a baptism fire, and also Pyotr Vavilov, who we started the book with, and Lieutenant Govalyov, who is at the Shaposhnikov's introductory family dinner, are also marching toward the city. We learn more about Tolya. Now we're getting more in-depth with his character, uh, he's known for his, his shyness in giving orders, his mathematical know-how, especially his ability to explain things to people, and his awkwardness towards women, uh, which is exemplified by one occasion on which Shaboshnikov said to uh, Vlasyuk, uh, Vlasyuk, who is the commander of the regiment, a young person from the opposite sex was asking about you at the HQ. After that, it's written, his comrades nicknamed him Young Person from the Opposite Sex. To the rank-and-file soldiers, however, he was known as Lieutenant Could You Possibly. This was perhaps one of the funnier lines in the whole book. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, I, the description of Tolia is, is so... It's, I don't know, it feels like from, a, like, of, of, like, an approving uncle to, uh, so to speak, a nephew, really, where it's it's kind of like, well, you know, it could be more tough here, but really, it's very fond the whole way through, even when it's kind of taking the piss out of Tolia. Mm-hmm. So as Tolia is taking command, uh, this is, they're slightly outside of Stalingrad, and combat's happening at every level, land and, and, and sky, every moment of the day, pilots are, are fighting overhead and the soldiers any moment they look up they're seeing seeing aerial combat and are able to cheer when uh, a mig shoots down a Schmidt or are able to cry when a Schmidt is you know guns down uh, you know a, a mig and and guns down the pilot ejecting from the, the plane and uh as Tolia is marching towards the the actual battle he's having um light bulb moments from his life uh, from his, his young life as a non-soldier and all these events were compressed into a tiny compact lump like a hazelnut, it's written. Had any of it existed at all, the only reality now was the thunder of battle, still some distance away, but drawing nearer and glo- growing louder. Tolia felt confused. It was not that he was afraid of death as, or, or suffering. It was more that he was afraid of the test to which he would soon be subjected. Would he pass the test? Some of his fears were childish, while others were more adult. And so he worries about whether his voice is going to crack in battle or whether he will actually be able to stand up or whether he's going to crack and run. So this strange mixture of someone who's never truly fought wondering whether, will I die here? But also, am I going to look like a fool in front of, you know, my my, uh, subordinates? Simultaneously childish and adult, like the, the text says. But he doesn't have too much time to worry about these things because the battery commander, as they're approaching, is wounded and he's put in command. So he has to run to the front and understand the situation. And in that moment, it's noted that he basically becomes another person, similar to uh, similar to the last chapter in which Ivan Novikov uh, becomes another person when he's in his element. Uh, uh, Tolga, too, when put in command of this artillery battery, becomes an entirely another person, is able to make decisive decisions, uh, putting the artillery much further forward because of the defensive position they're in. They will be defended as well as they could be, even if they were further back, while also providing a much better firing position. And with such confidence explaining that even his superiors think, oh, well, that makes sense. They even begin to assume that they've that the lines they're calling on are, have actually been tapped and they're talking to German uh, sappers. But uh, after talking to his, his reasoning, realize, oh, it, this really is Tolia, but assume he's uh, gained his confidence in vodka rather than just him feeling and knowing what he should be doing. 
they carry on doing it throughout the day, carrying out massively successful uh, artillery attacks until the night in which the uh, the Vermont counterattacks, and they begin to pay for all their successes during the day, deeply fighting until the morning. Uh, and, and Tolia, in the middle of the night, notes it, it is noted had no strength left for anything but his guns. There was room in his soul for only one feeling, only one vague dream to survive until the morning to see the sun, which he does until suddenly he's hit in the chest. And they, as he falls down and kind of fades out, it's noted, yelled by his, his men that the lieutenant is wounded. Um, and this is where we close the story for now. But he was he was doing it till then. He really was, he was he, up to the point where he got shot in the chest, presumably yeah. or yeah. otherwise doing pretty good. He was doing pretty good. So from this point, we join a major who's with a train of wounded people. Possibly, it's, it's, it gets a little vague. There's, there's heavy-handed references to a lieutenant who's been wounded. Is this Tolia? Is it not Tolia? Uncertain. And not resolved in this uh, in this section of the book, if I if I can be honest. At some point, this is revealed to be Burroughskin. I, I know for a fact that we've mentioned Burroughskin before. I just haven't been able to find Burroughskin in my notes. I think it was, it was fairly minor presence before, but we'll expand more on how... Uh, the Burroughskins actually have a much larger presence in the book than it may initially seem. Burroughskin has been fighting in the war since 1941, almost nonstop since the beginning. And he, he should have more decorations. It should be much higher up, but uh, always before he truly enters uh, or truly receives any of these things, he always ends up disappearing and going somewhere else where he uh, continues on as more or less a frontline fighter. In his story, traveling with these wounded, he eventually meets uh, Aristov. Uh, who is a, a quartermaster and someone who used to be a subordinate of his back in the day, but is now actually much higher rank than him. But because of the, the features of history, every stuff kind of still sees Burroughskin as a superior, and he invites him to a, a meal at his, his lodgings. So they drink and eat together, and they talk about... Uh, we, we learn re- briefly about the unwritten rules of the army, which is fascinating, especially how you address the superior. Fascinating or highly technical? I don't know. I, well, okay. For me, highly technical and fascinating often overlap. So I can't <laughs> say that will be t- the same for everyone else. I don't know if that, <laughs> I don't know if the, the same is true for you. I thought, wow, this is a really long couple of paragraphs to spend talking about this in the middle of a war. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's fair. That's fair. I was thinking, man, I love uh, understanding the cultural mores of the Red Army. Uh, but yeah, that's that's a fair way to look at it, too. So Burriskin wants to talk about his wife during this event, but he finds that he's really unable to say anything. So Aristov uh, talks more about really things that are very technical, why he keeps his position, how he's able to uh, maintain these things and find things for commanders whether it's a sturgeon or a certain type of uh, vodka or a certain type of beer or a certain type of cigarettes and that's how he's maintained his position in fact uh, gotten quite highly in the ranks because he's able to find things that other people are not and at this point this is where i was like the warning bells in my mind were going off it's like i know i've met this character before uh in which it said that uh, he touches he touched the tomatoes bereskin does hoping to find one that was fully ripe, but not fully soft. Then he felt embarrassment, thinking sadly how Tamara would tell him off for doing exactly that. She didn't like him fingering the tomatoes or cucumbers on a shared dish. And it was in this moment where I was like, I've read this passage before. I know I've read this very thought before. I don't know if it's in Berezkin. I don't know if it was for something that he shares with Vavilov. But this character is this character has been here before. Be that as it may, we carry on. Uh, Aristov is called out to some duties, and and Broskin begins to, to drink with the landlady, who tells him about her life and the, the son she's lost to the war. Um, and he and actually he is in the the realm of of his wife Tamara's family, where they where they come from. And he begins to ask her, and the woman tells him about her family history. We we learn a little bit more about that. Her father, who was a, a commander in the army. 
uh, and and especially Tamara's history as kind of a sort of a ne'er do well in a Soviet sense, I guess. Uh, so at the during that night, Bereskin repairs the tunic, and the the landlady watches him with some amazement, noting that he's very experienced with the needle. And she asks him if he was, you know, this is what he did in his former life. And he says, no, I've been a soldier since 1921. But he does take some pride in noting that he has always been very good with repairing and even sewing. Uh, and at one point even sewed his wife a, a dress, which she wore for two years straight and became the pride uh, of her and the envy of all the other military wives who tried to copy it by going to actual, you know, actual seamstresses and others who could create dresses. Just as a side note, for a while I was like confused when I was reading a uh, uh, Grossman's biography, I was confused by how, like, multiple women left their their husbands for him. But given that, like, most of his, like, true heroes or guys he writes most riveting live are just dudes who are, like, just love doing chores at home, like, raising their, like, <laughs> raising their kids, spending time with their daughters. Like, man, I just sure do love, like, sewing dresses for my wife. Yeah, I'm starting to get how Grossman uh, really seemed to attract <laughs> people. Sure, sure. It suddenly makes a lot more sense to me. The hottest trait that you can have is liking to sew dresses for your wife. According to Grossman, I look. I'm I'm not an expert in these things, but I I'm pretty certain that's a that's an incredible trait. If you're looking to uh, if if you're looking to to attract someone, if you're going to be like, hey, look, I'm so good at household chores. I can sew dresses. I'm so good at taking care of kids. I, I I'm I'm saying it's it's yeah. a strong it's a strong foot forward. It is much like the spam bot that keeps sending us messages on our website, tipsytolstoy.com, or to our <laughs> email, tipsytolstoy@gmail.com, that says, "Can I find here, serious man?" and could they find here serious man could they question could mark they? winky face question mark winky face i don't know <laughs> just some food for thought i just got one of the one of those the other day that like really expanded on it not just serious man but serious man with many other traits looking for now the the the, the inflation inflation's really getting towards uh the these spam bots they're looking for a lot more now really yeah i, I don't remember uh, what it was but it was it was it was it was a large set of traits that's i mean that's a lot to ask I know. I, we already had Serious Man down. We were starting to wrap our head around what, whether you could find Serious Man here or not. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I can add more to that. Yeah, yeah. Well, you definitely can't find Serious Men here at this podcast. Yeah, we're mostly getting targeted by like crypto scammers now. <laughs> like finance scammers. Um, I mean, yeah, that, that, that about scans. I mean, not crypto mm-hmm. scammers, but finance scammers kind of scans. Mm-hmm. So if you have a finance scam that you want us to invest in, shoot us an email at uh, tipsytolstoy at gmail.com. Um, so that night, Bereskin finds the landlady crying, and she tells him that um, she lost all of her sons to, to men like him, but he's going off to the war now, and, and he's such a nice person. And he really doesn't know what to say to that, so he just kind of walks off. The next morning, we follow a Lieutenant Dorensky. Dorensky, if you don't quite recall, was one of the... Uh, other subordinates of Vikhov, who Novikov worked with, uh, Doransky, Vikhov wanted to transfer back to the, uh, the reserves, but uh, Novikov was trying to get him forward unsuccessfully, even when Novikov got his tank corps earlier, later in the, in, the, in the book, is again trying to get Doransky into his unit, but is unsuccessful at that point as well. So at this point, Doransky is moving towards Stalingrad. He's, he's paying for less than stellar lodgings with less than stellar, well, amenities, exactly. He's staying in a private home. And while he's there, he remembers his his history as he's reading his novel, or not his novel, his his diary, and all the things he's been through. And at the very end, it's noted that he remembered the year 1937. He remembered his time in prison, the nighttime interrogations in The Investigator. He remembered the moment in 1940 when, after being summoned from the camp to Moscow, he was told in his case, he was told his case had been reviewed and he had been judged innocent. 
so uh Dorensky is uh, a victim of the of the gulag uh what would become the the known as the gulags which is unusual uh i would say again it's hard to tell what was and was not included in the actual book i would say Dorensky being <laughs> being gulagged uh, not necessarily probably included in the actual release back in the day um but this is something he did go through in his time and he he following this fantasizes about his triumphs over Bikoff being promoted and having Bikoff uh, under under him in in uh, command sense and he acknowledges it as kind of petty but at this point he really has nothing else to imagine rather than just you know I, i'm gonna get one over on on those above me who have you know treated me like i'm nothing yeah and obviously his ultimate goal to probably 30 or 40 years in the future to form the russian variant of the English new wave band formed in Birmingham in 1978 by keyboardist Nick Rhodes and bassist John Taylor, comrade Duran Durensky. Hmm? Anything? Anyone? That's. Um, I'm. I'm gonna need to. I'm. I'm not gonna lie to you. I'm gonna need to Google that one after we're done recording. That was. That was good, but very specific. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's for the uh, Duran Duran VIP fans out there. <laughs> Well, for all of it, I know there's a huge overlap between Tipsy Tolstoy mm-hmm. fans and Duran Duran fans. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is funnier when you have to explain the joke, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I find that with every joke. The more you have to explain it, the funnier it is. That's that's what I I've always too. enjoyed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. People love it. I'm great at parties. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of parties, we follow uh, some soldiers trying to cross a bridge who are watching some planes circling overhead. Uh, which uh, for a brief time we go to a much wider perspective and understand these plans overhead are actually General Zhukov uh, discussing with his subordinates the war um, as and also many things really not so important about the war as they go onward and all the soldiers blow when we rejoin them which apparently includes Vavilov, uh, our boy Vavol- uh, Pyotr Vavilov, as they uh, go on discussing those the strange plans who are above them who could possibly be who could possibly be there some you know lieutenant commander they're imagining such low ranks compared to you know the actual leader of the uh of the of the forces at the time so uh, it's it's uh, we're following many of the the troops who are approaching stalingrad really this at this point in the in the in in this part we are following those who are reserve troops who are entering the city or going towards the city and it's written of of them as they're approaching black dust swirled on the road high in the sky hung a shimmering hung a shimmering glow a glow that had now hung over Stalingrad, over the Volga, and the surrounding steppe for several nights. The whole world had seen this glow. It fascinated and horrified them now, moving towards it. So those those uh, soldiers moving towards Stalingrad are, are horrified by the basically constant combat that's happening in the sky, on the streets, anywhere around there. Uh, and so we zoom out over a wounded unit who are... Uh, moving towards Stalingrad uh, over the refugees fleeing away from Stalingrad and those sort of deserters, those sort of not quite fighting, not quite, you know, retreating who are also existing around the city, which is a very, uh, one of more, one of the chapters which Grossman, Grossman writes, which is strongly focused on individual stories. It's hard to say whether or not these are created or were things actually he actually heard, although remembering that he didn't integrate many stories, which he did know, um, could be good. Could go either way on this front. Returning back to Duransky, he stays in a hut overnight, and he has a conversation with the people who live there um, about the the dozen sons, uh, three actual sons, and nine grandsons they sent to the war, uh, and the many other things they've given to both the war and the soldiers who've come through before the both the, the old couple flee the house for the night, going to sleep in a 
uh, in a ravine to avoid bombings while Dorensky, who is so tired, just goes to sleep on a cot right above ground while bombers around them fly, uh, you know, dropping bombs in the surrounding areas. So in the morning, Dorensky wakes up. Um, normally, at this time of dawn, this would be a time of quiet, and at least in previous times, Dorensky has been fighting. But now, in this new form of war, even in these, these bright era hours, planes are flying, soldiers are fighting, and then there is no hour of quiet. So he and Boroskin eventually meet. Boroskin is is late because he's trying to go get milk for a, a wounded soldier they have, which Dorensky finds greatly irritating, although after finding the reason, backs off him a little bit, until uh, Dorensky sees something, and in fact uh, cries out, and then the rest of them begin to look. And this cry, it's written, was so frightening, so charged with complaint, horror, grief, reproach, and happiness that everyone who heard it flinched, as if from a burn or some other sudden physical pain. So this is Dorensky suddenly realizing that he sees his, his wife and daughter, his wife Tamara and his daughter Luba. And it's written following this, Dorensky realized that he too was shaking. This chance meeting in the step was something he never spoke about. But even 30 years later, when he was a lonely old man, he would feel the same overwhelming anguish as when he remembered this moment. When he remembered how this man and woman had first looked at each other, and how he had glimpsed in their faces all the savagery and grief and homeless happiness in those terrible years. So in this moment, uh, Burroughskin and his wife Tamara meet, and they, they see their the, the as well as their daughter Luba. And uh, this is the moment when it began to pull together for me, because Luba remembers the table of the Shaposhnikovs as, uh, as Dorensky, and Luba, uh, Dorensky and Tamara meet, and they, they, Dorensky gives Luba and... Um, Tamara, all the food he can muster, all the the milk he was bringing to his wounded men, and all the all the quietness he can bring in, in a house he he requisitions from a nearby family. And that was when I began to realize and remembered that there was a a small girl named Luba at the Shabosnikov's table at the very beginning of the book. And I go back and I realize uh, Tamara, who is the wife of a Red Army commander who she's not seen since the beginning of the war, who also put her son Slava. In a, in a home at Marussia's, uh, with Marussia's help to make sure they got fed three times a day, uh, and who had a daughter named Luba, began to make sense. And I thought, Slava, that makes, that name sounds familiar. And I went forward and I realized in the chapter where Marussia is checking out the children's home, she's actually checking on a boy named Slava. She's helped place there. And of course, Slava will be killed after trying to comfort a small Ukrainian boy uh, while they're crossing a river. Uh, along with Marussia and the others in that orphanage. And in this moment when they meet, um, Tamara also cries into Ransky, telling him that she was not able to keep Slava safe. Labyrinth <laughs> of plots. It all comes together. It all comes together. In the worst way possible. In the worst way possible. So they the, the Boroskins have been here this whole time, but unlike the Shaposhnikovs, they've been more prone to death. And also, uh, tomorrow, uh, later, we'll, we'll talk to Doransky about the, not Doransky, tomorrow we'll talk to uh, Boroskin about the great the great uh, wanting they had in the, the time between when they were part before they got to the Shaposhnikovs in, in Stalingrad. The great uh, hunger and, and fleeing and uh, having to do work just to make it by in the many months. It's a rough one. And that chapter also was is written from the meeting between uh, Tamara and uh, Berezkin is, is written from the perspective of Luba, who does not understand what's going on, really. And so a lot of the chapters kind of between the lines as you get the actual uh, literal uh, lines of what they're saying before it's interpreted through Luba's perspective, who doesn't really understand what's going on. 
and uh, it's it's a, it's one of the tougher chapters to read, I will say. Uh, there have been a lot of tough chapters for like a lot of reasons, but the one where uh, you clearly understand what's going on, but you have to all interpret it through the, the eyes of a child who doesn't. Um, it's a it's a rough one. It's a rough read. Yeah. This this part specifically. Yeah, the one rough part of the book, you know. No other parts, but yeah, <laughs> just this one. So they spend the rest of the day, their day together, and towards the end, it's there's not even really prose to speak of. It's just uh, uh, contextless sentences from one to the other about about Slava, about their old friends who are now dead, about what they're going to do going forward, about missing each other. Um, and it continues for a page and a half until finally it says, in the morning, they parted. Once again, uncertain of whether or not they're ever going to see each other again. <sighs> it's a rough one. Yeah, it was a very emotional chapter in the middle of just kind of army marching yeah uh and so from here speaking of army marching we go back to the marching of lieutenant kovalyov uh, who is also a member of the shpashnikov's uh table at the beginning of the story as well as Pyotr vavilov as their unit is marching towards stalingrad and the various things they run into the various characters they run into um the one woman who finally makes vavilov break from his his internal stoicism and when she's trying to sell water to the soldiers for 10 rubles a piece he asks someone who's returning hey like hey why aren't you buying the water and and he says well she's selling it to us at 10 rubles a piece and when he goes up to confront her she says well i need to feed my children and he freaks out and kicks over her water bucket and says you know like feed this to your children like kind of draws his gun and she runs off and all the other soldiers are kind of shocked because even they are more for once are more accepting than vavilov is and says is this really our vavilov he seems he's so calm how can he do such a thing really and that continues on to another a, a short uh, vignette in which uh, vavilov tries, goes to meet a peasant woman who's promised something to their some tomatoes to their regiment um and while he's in their house with her son and she tells him about her husband's who've been killed which is why she's giving the tomatoes because it's using them the salt to save them all through the winter um and it'll, they'll just go to waste he stops and, and decides to take some extra time and uh, takes an axe and starts fixing things around her house which you know as if you'll recall back to the beginning of the story one of the great his regrets about leaving behind his home is all the things he wanted to fix but he wouldn't have time to and he and he um and his wife doesn't have the know-how how to fix and at some point he hears footsteps and he grows fearful and looks out and and thinks he's going to see Kovalyov, um and then grows shame ashamed that such everyday tasks when in which his own life he would think nothing of going about and doing he now feels and and knows for certain that he'll be punished if he he's caught dilly-dallying because it's not what he's it's being asked of him for the war effort but he's, he's still unable to stop and like just not see a door which needs fixing and, and think well it's going to be cold in the winter so i need to fix it and no one else is going to do so i should that those are those are the stories as they approach Stalingrad, uh, which more or less uh, close out this part of the book. But I do want to read the final uh, final paragraph of this part uh, as we rejoin Yermenko, who is, uh, as a reminder, the leader of the Stalingrad front and the uh, the way they moved Yermenko's uh, front from the actual city of Stalingrad to behind the Volga. And Yermenko is telling a, a new commander, Troikov, who we met briefly before, uh, about going into the city and commanding troops in there and saying, telling them telling him there is no longer a, a a west and east bank to the volga there is only the west bank that's the only one that matters and they are reflecting basically on how close the combat is to them getting within uh, german submachine gunners getting within 250 meters of this very um hq uh during the nights or, or at least it was getting within 250 meters when they were in the city um and then choikov going into the city to fight and and uh, begin to take on the 
not exactly a losing fight. That's not what anyone's saying at this point. But the the the, the huff fight in which no one, including Yermanko, is hopeful for uh, in Stalingrad. And as as Char- uh, Choikov leaves, it's noted that he knew very well that the city was dead. Shading his eyes with one hand, Choikov continued to look at the city. Why did these ruins seem so alive? Was it a mirage? A vision of the past? Could it even be a vision of the future? What awaited him among these ruins? How would the coming weeks and months turn out? Looking towards the east, he bellowed to his adjunct, Fyodor, the car. They could hear his bellow even below in the bunker. Dubrovkin said gravely, Dubrovkin is one of the aides in the bunker, that Fyodor must have a hard time of it. And people say adjuncts don't see real combat. And that's where we end chapter 17 of part three of this book and part uh, and the end of what we'll be covering in this podcast, or at least the, the chapter summary which will be coming in this particular part of the podcast. It was a part. It was a part. Um, I think last time we kind of not complained, but talked about how we suddenly took a sudden break from the war to go to the back lines to talk about uh, the farmers and the the people carrying out the coal mining, um, which is very slow. And now we're regaining the the war effort in which things happen fast. We have Tolia, who carries on a glorious mission as as an artillery commander, but is within only a few pages wounded and left to an unknown fate and we rejoin those many reservists who are marching towards Stalingrad and their interminable um interminable march towards it which is uh, I think a very it, I mean it's it makes sense they're the soldiers in combat they have moments of intense combat and suddenly they're wounded and they're back out because of the uh, intensity of it well whereas those who are on their way just are spending many many hours marching finding food finding shelter and so on well, I think what it makes you realize at this point is like there are some cases where the war is day and night, day and night, just constant fighting. But most of what it is is like walking from place to place, especially from the perspective right. of an infantry soldier here. And uh, it, it really does feel like that. Well, walking and finding food, really. I mean, as, as yeah, you mentioned, right. Fedorensky, he is even paying for his own lodgings on the way there. <laughs> and he complains that he's paying more for these lodgings than he paid in Moscow. <laughs> and says that he actually gets worse accommodations than we had in Moscow <laughs> for the same money. Yeah, it's walking and trying to get food and trying not to uh, have your blisters become infected and die. An age-old, you know, trouble for marching soldiers. Mm-hmm. few things on this part that I liked a lot. The stylistics of Grossman here, I think, are phenomenal. And you actually pointed out a couple of the ones that I wanted to talk about. So I thank you for my segue. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course the first chapter well i can kind of work my way backwards a little bit since we were already here the meeting that we have between husband and wife the presentation of it let's call it really tolstoyan in some aspects to me so that the whole almost the entire meeting is actually told through luba's the younger daughter's point of view which is a really fascinating way to show this scene i like the way the the couple lines here where well, the narrator who's from luba's perspective says then papa began to tell his own story he mentioned old friends some of whom mama remembered and luba noticed that papa kept repeating the word killed just like mama repeated the word bread and i thought it was just a really interesting way to conceptualize this kind of uh meeting between old older people who kind of have have this uh, a different set of concerns than than the child and what that kind of looks like to a, a fresher less weathered pair of eyes let's say and right. it reminds me a lot of the very famous tolstoy 
work. Hostemer, a story of a horse where Tolstoy does the narration from the point of view of a horse and it kind of slips into that point of view very seamlessly and the same exact thing happens here. This is not a Tolstoy specific technique. There's a lot of people that do this that are not Tolstoy or Grossman um, but I do think it's kind of an intentional technique that he's sort of uh, picking up and using for sure. And the technique itself, should anybody care, kind of is conceptualized in the 1910s. Uh, it's a technique called defamiliarization. And the formless critic Victor Shklovsky in his essay Art as Device, or sometimes called Art as Technique, uh, is the one that kind of coins the term. And it's a technique that's used to sort of, you know, make you feel estranged from what you're reading through the perspective of what it's uh, the subject that's being presented. And so this was a super great example of that. Uh, if I ever have students that I have to teach about defamiliarization, this is a great passage uh, to sort of use and just to see kind of how strange the war is and the effects that it has on children specifically who don't really have a full understanding of what it is that's happening. Right, because even Luba even misunderstands some of Berezkin's activities or actions when she gives her some food and he, she knows that while she's eating and he, he watches her and he, he's like, he seems angrier. And when he right, notes right. How, how readily she eats the fish, she begins to cry and she feels offended. And like, why is he, why is he crying that I'm eating this fish? Of course, um, anyone who's, well, I, I would assume around her age, a little bit younger, a little bit older, much older, will understand why a father would cry upon seeing his father so rudely go after, you know, fish during wartime. She doesn't understand, so you really have to step outside of the author. The author saying anything to your own understanding of that encounter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought it was just an exceptionally written passage, and it's kind of like the emotional climax. I think of this part of the book for sure, or at least this hundred pages that we read. Right, especially when bringing together, and I don't, I don't, this isn't technical, but bringing together so many stories of Tamara going back and reading the Shapovsky's yeah, first story of, of dinner. And all these discrete stories of Tamara struggling and feeling embarrassed of having nothing, of Slava being trying to be brave during his time at the orphanage before he was killed, and Berezkin just trying to carry on the war in, in like in every in every step of the way when he sees his wife's old village, and when he's marching, thinking about where's Tamara now, what's going on, and finally seeing her and bringing it all together and, and finding out that his son is dead and everything and all the struggles they've gone through in his absence and his struggles too in their absence. It's it's such an affecting scene. And so many, so many other parts of the book, yeah, also affecting, but this one is, it's like an unexpected gut punch rather than the one that you follow, remembering that mm -hmm. there are other families in this war too, who are not, you know, just are side characters from our perspective, but have such an internal life of their own that when they get to be, you know, uh, highlighted, it, it feels just as impacting as any of the characters we spent many, many pages with. Yeah, and then just the how simply Grossman allows them to part at the end of the chapter in terms of description. That's yeah. that's it. They just part. That's it. They part. They don't know if they're ever, ever going to see each other again, and they part. Mm -hmm. They get less than, what, six words, and they part, yeah. more or less. Yeah, which is kind of, I, I think it's it's fine. I think in the extreme circumstances of war in general, and I think that probably this is part of, his camaraderie uh, general point, which which is that just there's an unspoken understanding of what's happening. Mm -hmm. And there's an unspoken understanding of kind of what to expect. Yeah. Everyone is essentially willing to make 
the ultimate sacrifice, and that's kind of the unwritten understanding. Well, most people. The people right. that are not out of ones that get ridiculed. <laughs> if you spend all your time looking for champagne and fish, well, you're really not doing that great of a service. Well, you know, as, as um, Grossman points out, to some people in the service, you're very important if you do that. Right, <laughs> right. Um, but as the old lady points out, that's not who's winning the war, right? Yeah, yeah. And who do you trust more? Military generals or old Russian lady? <laughs> that's a hard one. <laughs> Um, there, there are a couple other examples of beauty you said you want to talk about. What are, what are the other ones? Uh, the other one that I really liked, which is going to be on our reading list eventually for us to be able to compare, is this genre of uh, Russian prose that emerges after World War II called lieutenant's prose. And it, this has to do with a lot of the young lieutenants that are kind of come up through the Red Army uh, during World War II and they're fighting. And the whole passage with Tolia is very, very reminiscent of uh, a couple things. But the one that I want to read on, on the podcast is called Frontline Stalingrad by Viktor Nekrasov. And we were we were actually going to read it previously, but it didn't, didn't even get around to it. That's, that's a book where it really is like second by second on the front line. This definitely jumps around a lot more and you do get like some battle scenes, but it's mostly not really focused on the battle, I would say. Uh, Frontline Stalingrad and the Lieutenant's prose in general is much more focused on, I'd say, sort of the psychology in battle, like during battle specifically. And I think it's a really strong part in this book, but I also think that there are books where like that is the whole thing of it. And that's also a kind of an interesting like counterpoint but in another interesting perspective of this war and war in general right and if i can break in for a second i think it's something that it kind of outlines one of the i don't know if this is conscious or not one of the kind of ideologies of grossman and also you you by hypothesized previously that maybe svetlana alexeyevich has read grossman because of his intense desire to not reduce war to just the moment to moment you know, combat between soldiers, but to tell the stories of those in the front line on the, on you know, on the home front in the back line, those in the production line, which is similar to what Grossman or to, to what Alexeyevich tries to do in her work. And I, I, I can't help but wonder in this part, if that's something that, I mean, it, I, I won't, I won't draw this comparison out further, but it, it is to your point about Lieutenant fiction. It's like an Alexeyevich version of Lieutenant fiction where, yeah, it does have the, the glory of combat where they get to revel in their success against the german lines hitting german fuel lines before uh, but in the you know within a day tolia is wounded and to be frank for the most soldiers in, in the red army that not you know one day of combat isn't necessarily normal but you know not a whole lot of time on the front line without being shot would be a little surprising and so this is like a, a sold lieutenant's prose but within the, the constraints of lieutenant's prose but yeah everyone kind of gets shot pretty fast if you're on the front line. Yeah, it kind of... I, I think it is still very Grossman-esque, though, in a lot of ways. Right. Because it's... He, he's less looking at the... Well, he is looking at the psychology of the individual, but he's looking at how they change within specific circumstances because he has this really wonderful passage, which I think is kind of the encapsulation of uh, what he thinks it's like in, in the military and how people change when... Tolia is really kind of starting to, you know, they're they're starting to do well, and he's very much more confident, and he's like essentially a different person. But he says, 
Lieutenant Shaposhnikov was indeed still himself. To think that someone has suddenly been transformed is always a mistake. No one who really knows another person will ever say in bewilderment, I can't believe it, he's changed overnight. It's much more accurate to say, circumstances have suddenly changed, and this has allowed what was always present within him to reveal itself. Which is a, a funny, well, to me it sounds funny because it's a much more technical thing to say. Nobody, of course, would ever say that. Um, mm. But it, it definitely is, I think, what Grossman is, is getting at. All of these people who are very ordinary, it's not that they suddenly change and become extraordinary. It's that that was always actually in them and these circumstances have allowed them to become extraordinary or to reveal the extraordinary within them. If you want to tie back to our, our long-running theory of the ordinary dash ordinary, the ordinary dash heroic, which is that, uh, in this case, the ordinary dash heroic within people is not a sudden thing that's introduced by the concept of warfare, but the ordinary dash heroic is something that's always within person, within a person, and the the presence of something like a trying factor like warfare may allow that present that ordinary dash heroic to suddenly take front and center. Mm-hmm. And I, I like I said, I think this is a much more realistic model of socialist realism uh, rather than, right, <laughs> there is no off time. You're always do, doing something incredibly heroic, uh, which is, of course, not really realistic. Right. Whereas here you have just what are generally what people would consider very average people who do happen to do something very extraordinary. And I think it's also, I, I also really like the perspective of many varied uh, like people just in villages on the way especially for the many marching troopers for Duransky for Vavilov uh, who have different perspectives in the war like Duransky's uh, landlady who's sort of conflicted because she kind of seems to want to hate Duransky for kind of taking for people soldiers like him taking her sons away from her but also understanding that he's such like a nice person understanding what he, he faces and what he's doing well there are others who are like well you know you're a lieutenant. I'm here. You sleep here. I'm going to go sleep in the trenches. Not in a good or a bad way, but just like neutral versus those encountered by Vavilov where they're very, I don't want to say servile, but like the ones who are like very kind of pro Red Army who Vavilov feels is in kinship to himself. But Vavilov in those moments in kinship with those people feels distanced or alienated from the Red Army life. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's a good it's a good perspective for just those along the way. Those those not villages not far away from the war and not in the war, but those villages in those kind of liminal zones between what what could be frontline soon, but are not now. Mm-hmm. Just a good character study of life, I guess. One of the last points I was that I'm kind of interested in, as we've been kind of talking about, is the Soviet conceptualization of empire and wh- whether good or bad or problematic or what to kind of make of it there's just this kind of long long list of towns that's mentioned on uh 753 in the beginning of chapter 11 it's just kind of reminiscing about different towns and and the good parts of them like the parks and the squares and the seaside and well like probably half of the towns that are mentioned are not in russia right uh, mostly in ukraine yeah, they're in Ukraine, and they're spelled with the Russian spelling of the word. And I just thought it was interesting, the sort of linguistics of empire that come to the forefront of that, even while, even through translation, it kind of comes through. And it, the more I kind of think about it, there are several people that are kind of in the military, and this one, it's, I don't know if it's clear necessarily who's 
speaking at this point, but in the very beginning of part three, there's a conversation between two soldiers going on where he's talking about how he, in 1941, had been fighting in the forest uh, of Belarusia and Ukraine. And he says, I've seen things that cannot be spoken about that no one will ever write down. And it's it's just, again, just so clear how really the, really kind of the brunt of the atrocities that even in the book, the soldiers are like, yeah, we won't, we won't talk about this. This was terrible. Uh, really are not necessarily happening on Russian soil. And the fact that they kind of, kind of get lumped in as a sort of, kind of like shared suffering i'm not sure is really felt by everybody in the novel you know what i mean right i still think there there's a sense of othering that happens when when characters talk about ukraine and other soviet republics specifically that is kind of not it's kind of i'd say like playfully neglected when it comes on to the soviet rah rah we beat the germans right. sort of rhetoric because I think, again, this is something that I don't think was maybe reflected in the actual version that was published in the USSR, but early in the book when, I think it's Krimov is in Ukraine, there's a lot of Ukrainian citizens or uh, you peasants who kind of express an ambivalence about the Germans of like, well, you know, will it be so bad? We've seen what's come. What's what, what's happened? We'll see what's, what is to come. And of course, that's a result of the fact of the the actual Golomador in which, you know, millions of Ukrainians died as a result of the, you know, the collectivization policies of the USSR. And also it combined with the fact that the USSR uh, post, you know, treaty with Nazi Germany kind of suppressed sort of their racial attitudes towards Slavs it's easy to see how they can came to that conclusion. Uh, but that's like, a, that's a very impactful scene. But then there are also Ukrainian characters later in the book. I forget their names in this particular section where they, they, they interact with many others, uh, especially in Vavilov's unit where that, that's not as, um, you know, the fact that the Ukraine is mentioned, but it's not felt as deeply as, you know, earlier in the book where we have some depictions of Krimov and for example, Ukrainian villages to mm-hmm. your point. Mm-hmm. about the language of empire and the way that it's expressed sometimes very uh, explicitly, sometimes very not explicitly, very softly, I guess. Mm-hmm. Say so it's not the primary focus of this read for me because this read is just kind of an enjoyment first read for me. Sure, yeah. Um, but it's something that I'm definitely paying attention to. It's, it's not something that I have a fully worked out theory, right, or a concrete list of examples, but every time I, I like the further I read, the more examples I kind of have like piling up where I'm like, hmm, Interesting. No, it, but it is a good point to notice because, for example, Grossman himself mostly grew up in what is modern-day Ukraine, um, so he's obviously familiar with these regions, and I think that's part of the reason why he noted he, he notes so many of them because he he grew up in and what is now in Kiev, or what has always been Kiev. Um, that's where he was educated. That's where he grew up. But he was also educated in the center of the USSR, Moscow, which is also where. Uh, Grossman went for schooling in his uh, secondary sc- or sorry tertiary schooling in his, his uh, university years is where he went. It it has a large presence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And two, I mean, I think you can even this is okay. This is a side point, but this is something I've been thinking about for uh, last couple of weeks actually. As um, recently, my girlfriend was reading uh, a cookbook I have for like traditional Russian food, and uh, you know, she was surprised to find that potatoes or like tomatoes aren't present in traditional Russian food when she's like so familiar from the podcast of like, you know, pickled 
pickled tomatoes or tomato or potatoes having such a presence in food um, that it was kind of a surprise to find out that you know tomatoes or potatoes is our introduction of Catherine the Great and tomatoes are also kind of around that period and just to talk about food especially tomatoes and potatoes which are of course originated from the the Americas and the indigenous peoples here being such a like an integral part of so many cuisines abroad I mean it's hard to think about Russian cuisine without tomatoes or without potatoes and it's hard to think about Italian or or uh, Indian or a, a Chinese cuisine without you know tomatoes, chilies, um, other other things. There's so many like cuisines around the world who have integrated North American cuisine, North North and South American cuisines, uh, and and uh, the products of their historical agriculture so much to the point that it almost seems natural that you get ramen, Japanese ramen, and it has corn in it without any acknowledgement or like not that it has to at a restaurant, but without necessarily you understanding that corn is not native to Japan in any you know facet and did not come to Japan until relatively recently. And that's true also of the, the story in Stalingrad. It's totally, totally off base of what we're talking about here. But I was thinking about a lot recently about the way food makes its way around the world and the way that we don't often don't think about how the legacies of violent colonialism leads to the ways that we eat now mm-hmm. like the ever present ever present ever presentness of tomatoes in russian or slavic cuisine which is of course not a natural thing and not a very old thing all things considered but that'll be a topic for our spinoff podcast on food <laughs> <laughs> I, would, I would love to do that that'd be great i would I, we'll come we'll, we'll come to that one day we should do like uh this would be hear me now this is kind of like a new idea for a show we should do like a sure. show where we go to different places and like try food from there oh that'd be totally unique mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. almost like a travel eating show sure yeah i'd be call it like i don't know bizarre cuisine strange mm-hmm. foods think mm-hmm. you think yeah i like it i think we're going i think it'd be really unique it really would be i'm <laughs> <laughs> not against it that's that's all i got on this part of Stalingrad. Me too. I, I I was really petting it out with that bit about food, which is just a minor obsession of mine, regardless of, <laughs> of, of uh, Slavic literature. Mm-hmm. I understand. Yes. Well, that being said, uh, Matt, I got to ask you as we kind of close down the podcast, what are we reading next time? Oh, boy. Next time, the journey continues. Next part of Stalingrad. Part nine. Second to last. It's it's mm. gonna be good. I'm looking forward to rounding out the series and being able to conclude some thoughts. I feel like for me, it is becoming time to end my journey with Stalingrad. Sure, right. It's, it's been here for a while. Not that I don't love it. I just I'm just so curious how it's gonna end. Really. Well, yeah. With that in mind, what on your ranking from uh, zero to Yeltsin? How drunk are you? I'm like a four. I was, so what I didn't realize is mm, that okay. the the whiskey that I was drinking it, it's more like a a wine sort of percentage alcohol wise, right? Um, so that's it didn't help, didn't do many favors. I will say, got it. It was delicious, which I is the important say. part. Which is the important part. Yeah, I, I I'm happy with that. So it's okay. It's okay to just be a four this evening. That it is. That it is. It's okay to be a four in life, but it's also okay to be four on, on the Yeltsin scale. <laughs> that's what I'm telling. That's what I keep telling my boss every day. It's just an okay to be four, four at the office. <laughs> <laughs> How about you? Where'd you end up? 
Um, well, I've been, I, so I've got these, what, 8% beers. I think I've had about four of them before we started recording, and I've had two of them since. So, Good God. <laughs> I think I'm an eight. I think I'm a good eight right now. Okay. You probably can tell, by the yeah, way. Yeah, I was wondering how you were tying in the food there for a second. Uh, no, it didn't help that my Wi-Fi cut out for part of it, but, <laughs> you know. No, the food was just me, like, getting very drunk when I was reading about tomatoes in the book and thinking, like... Dude, tomatoes are not originally from Eastern Europe, believe it or not. And then remembering, trying to explain to my girlfriend like a couple days ago when I was also blitzed, but trying to fold laundry. Um, mm-hmm. So well, she was reading a cookbook. So it's uh, it was it, it pulled it all back together. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And now it's recorded forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now it, now, now it's recorded for posterity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, sure, she'll feel great about this version of events that I've, I've laid out. <laughs> well, well, blitzed. Well, blitzed. Anyway, um, before we let you go, we want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons. We've got Jeff, Madeline, and Janice, Daniel, Darren, Daniel, Jack, Paige, Jesse, Lou, Irini, Brandon, Allison, Cole, Elise, Mysterious, Enerdu, Joanne, Yitza, Alex, Stephanie, Julie, Eli, Caitlin, Brett, Isaac, Austin, Zachary, Peck, Rob, Maya, Amanda, Blake, Shannon, Jay, Elizabeth, and Jacob. Podcasting is not free. Now that we pay for editing, you know, it's even less free. Uh, in grad school, it doesn't pay very well. Sorry, I had to censor what I was going to say because I know the editor's going to hear this. Um, grad school still doesn't pay very well. So, you know, if you're looking to join with our current patrons to keep the show running and help us cover some costs, we would be so, 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 so appreciative. Take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy if you want to become one of the Tolstoy boys. You like that? As you like it. That's a good, that's a good, I like that, I like that. Like the little mm. keep on keep us on our feet, a little flare for you. Move like a butterfly, staying like a bee. Mm-hmm. The music used in this episode was "Soviet March" by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on ToastedTomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at Tipsy Tolstoy Podcast or on Twitter at Tipsy Tolstoy. You can also join our email list on our website tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon.